Well, I'm going I'm to be super risky right now and ask whether or not you would prefer a traditional or a non-traditional Easter sermon on Easter Sunday. So, traditional or non-traditional. This is how you split a church, right? I'm... So, how many of you would like to hear a traditional Easter sermon? How many of you would like to hear a non-traditional Easter sermon? How many of you are confused? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to make everyone happy, uh, even though I'm not a politician. Um, I'm going to make everyone happy because we're going to look at Psalm 2 this morning as our text. And Psalm 2 is not a traditional Easter text because Psalm 2 is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But it couldn't be more traditional if traditional means old because Psalm 2 uh, would have been written centuries and centuries before Jesus even showed up. So best of both worlds, it doesn't get more traditional than, Acts, or excuse me, than Psalm chapter 2 and yet we don't usually emphasize Psalm 2 on Easter Sunday. But we should. We should. And so we're going to this morning and that's because time and time and time and time and time again, when the earliest Christians, like the apostles, were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, when they were preaching the gospel of Jesus being raised from the dead, they quoted and referenced Psalm chapter 2. It's how they thought of resurrection. It's how they spoke of resurrection. Psalm 2 is an inauguration psalm. It's a coronation psalm where God's Son is coronated. He is crowned, if you will, as the rightful reigning forever King. And in Psalm chapter 2, it ties it to the resurrection of Jesus. That's why in Acts chapter 13, it's Acts chapter, or excuse me, it's Psalm chapter 2. That's why Romans chapter 1, Talking about the resurrection, they reference Psalm chapter 2. This is why the author to the book of Hebrews, talking about Jesus' priesthood as the resurrected forever uh, priest, Psalm chapter 2. And so we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 this morning. Uh, if you haven't found it, I'm going to invite you to find it on your phone, on your pad, on your Bible, wherever it is. Psalm 2, and there are four scenes it's a pretty easy one to outline. There are four different scenes, just like there are four different scenes in a play, if there are four, or in a movie. There are different camera angles, and that's how Psalm 2 presents itself. Now, I know and understand that um, it's going to take us a little while to get to Jesus, but I want you to be able to see beyond the simplicity of things, if you will. Uh, if, if we've been splashing around in the kiddie pool, um, it's probably time that we, we, we move into some deeper waters uh, and that maybe we even think of the resurrection in a more full sense, uh, in a more biblically informed sense, to maybe join uh, hands with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, to the writer of the Hebrews, early Christians, how they would have thought of resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus so that we can understand Jesus better, so that we can understand the world we live in better, quite honestly, uh, and the sin that's involved, and so that we can understand and worship Jesus the way He should be worshipped. 
So that's where we're going. I know it's risky. I'm biting off a lot here. Uh, we're going to see th some things that are uh, not politically correct, probably. Um, if you've learned about Jesus from um, Hollywood talk shows, um, you're probably going to want to want to run to a safe space today. Um, but we want to see the Jesus who really is Jesus. And we can do that in Psalm chapter 2. And so uh, the four scenes answer four big questions. And so I'll introduce each of the four scenes uh, with really the question they're seeking to answer. Should be pretty simple to follow. So scene number one of these four scenes in Psalm chapter 2, it answers this question, what is with the opposition to God? What is with the opposition to God? Sort of like you, if you are a Christian, and you look around you and you see opposition to God, whether it be uh, in the realm of morality, in the realm of theology, in the realm of truth, whatever it might be, and you say, what is the deal with this opposition to God? It seems like everything God says and stands for, people are against. What's with that? Well, that's verses 1 to 3. Let's go ahead and read them. Verse 1 says, what, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What's with the opposition to God? What, what in the world is going on when you read your news feed? What, 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 is, what is going on here? This is crazy. Verse 2, The kings of the earth. So notice we've gone from the peoples and the nations... And even the kings, those who are powerful, and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah is what that is. New Testament says against His Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's meant to be ugly and graphic. And the psalmist is saying, what is with this world? What in the world is going on? People who are just the peoples, arguing from the lesser to the greater, to the kings, to the rulers. All different kinds of people. Whether it be those who are people just like us, or the extraordinary, the powerful, the intellectuals, your next door neighbor, or Richard Dawkins, or world rulers. What is, what is their beef? What in the world is going on here? They say to themselves, any kind of restraint, we're going to tear it off. We won't be ruled. We won't be told what to do. We will define morality by what we want to do. We will define what's true and what's not true about God by what we say. We will not have a sovereign. It's not exactly an Easter sermon, I know. But that's exactly what we need to understand if we're going to understand what Jesus came here to do and why the resurrection is so important. It's in this environment when the Apostle Paul preaches the gospel in Acts 13, he has this in mind when he's addressing people who are normal, ordinary people all the way up to the most powerful intellects around. What is with this world? one of those questions that you probably have, even if you don't word it like this, if you're a Christian. You say, what in the world? This is crazy. Against the Lord and against His anointed. It's baffling. 
What does this have to do with resurrection? Well, we're going to get to that. I promise. Scene number two. Camera angle number two. Okay? Answering this question. What is God's perspective? What is God's perspective? And this is in verses four to six. There's been, there has been and there is this long war against God, as one book title puts it. What's God's perspective on the long war against God? How about verse 4? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, what he means by derision, it's kind of a word I don't use very often, if ever in my life. He ridicules them. Other translations say he scoffs at them. What does God do in heaven? Oh, I, I, I so want to make them happy. Maybe I need to have a different plan. Wringing his hands. Oh no, they're not pleased with me. No. The, the contrast is, notice, he who sits in, doesn't it say, in the heavens. The one who's far above even kings and governors and rulers and the greatest intellects. He's way above them. He's not up here. He's not wringing his hands, wondering how he can make everybody happy. He sits in the heavens, enthroned, graphic image. He's sitting, enthroned in the heavens, and he laughs. He ridicules. He scoffs. And again, that might not be the view of God that you have. It's pretty tough to come up with that view of God unless you read the Bible. But maybe you noticed when you pulled in the parking lot today, this is Omaha Bible Church. It's amazing. It's amazing. He's not scrambling. This is a tough one for us if we're not used to thinking about God as if He were God. He's above it. He's not talking to peers. Let's keep going. I mean, if if that's hard to take, by the way, get a load of verse 5. (laughs) then he will speak. Seems like he's quiet a lot, doesn't talk all the time. Seems like everybody's getting away with whatever they want to do. Oh, then he will speak. There will come a time when he will speak to them and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So he doesn't stay silent. And when he speaks, notice what it says in verse 6, saying, as for me, God, the one who sits enthroned in heaven... As for me, I, in contrast to what you say, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Wow. Happy Easter. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says when he says God is not mocked. He might be in the short term. But the one true living seated above God is also a speaking God. And he will speak and he will make it clear that he's not mocked. He'll make it clear. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill.
I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I don't really want to know. <laughs> don't ask questions you don't know, want to know the answers to. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how, how you're feeling right about now. And I just want to give you permission to feel good about this. I, I, I realize that this, this sermon is not Rosie O'Donnell approved. Um, I realize that this is not maybe what you learned in Sunday school. Maybe it is, I don't know. But I, I just want to invite you, I'm going to give you permission, if you will, to like the sound of this. Because if there is a God who's above, and if He is a God who's made Himself known and said, here's who I am and here's how you come to me, and here's what you do to please me, if, if there is such a God, and the Bible says that there is, Jesus believes that there is, then this is actually something that should resonate with you. Because if there's a God, one God, one true living God, Yahweh, the self-existent, authoritative, one and only unique God, and He's made Himself known, then it only makes sense, it's only rational, that you would do what He says. It's absolutely ludicrous, crazy, irrational to say we will take any bonds that you put around us and we will throw them off. That's insane. That's crazy. It's stupid. And so there's something in, in us that says, you know what, this, this is right. Justice is good. Rebellion is not good. And, and maybe if you're having a hard time with that, just, just look at other people for a moment. People should do the right thing. I bet everyone in this room, on one level or another, thinks that other people should do the right thing. I mean, even pirates have a code, right? They have their own law. But it is important that we think about ourselves eventually, too there's a God, people should honor Him as God. And when they don't, it's not okay. It's not okay. This makes sense. Justice rings true. Scene number three. Question number three. How does Jesus fit in? How does Jesus fit in? Now, as the camera turns, you'll, you'll see this, and that I'm not making it up. Um, the microphone is also given to the Son. So now the Son is speaking. Jesus is speaking. It says in verse 7, look there, I, I, I will tell of the decree. He's going to go on to say, the Lord said to me, you are my Son. That's how we know the Son is speaking now. But go back to that part, I will tell of the decree. A decree is, is an official designation. I will tell of the official designation. And as we're going to see, I'll just read this so I get it right. The official designation that legitimizes the authoritative reign of a king. Could be translated promise, probably not strong enough. Statute, not bad. Some have translated a covenant, a formal agreement, a decree. 
Something that comes from a king. And as we're going to see, this is God's decree that Jesus is my son. The rightful heir to the forever throne to rule and reign and to provide deliverance to all those who trust in him. As one scholar put it, in this case, the decree is a covenantal certificate given to the king during his inauguration ceremony. It's official, right? And it's going to get to it. We're going to see this is resurrection. The resurrection is the official pronouncement, the official inaugurating act that He is the one. He's the one you'd better respect. He's the one in whom you can find salvation and deliverance. How does Jesus fit into this? Jesus says, the Son says, I will tell of the decree. How about this? In verse 7 again, the Lord. It's that formal name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. The self-existent, eternal, unique, no one else like Him, no other peer, the one true living God. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. There's our Easter text. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the way the apostles use that is not about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I used to think that before I started reading the Bible. Today I have begotten you. The apostles use it every single time about His resurrection. So I invite you to come to the deeper end of the pool. Stuff we should have learned in kindergarten, maybe. We should have learned in the kiddie pool. It's a resurrection text. Today, when you were raised from the dead, that was the day that I officially declared and told everyone, put the world on notice and informed them that you are my designated ruling, saving king, the one who will rule and reign forever. The one promised back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 who would come in the line of David to fulfill that promise who would rule and reign forever. It's extraordinary. When Jesus, that's why I say it's our, it's our Easter text, it's our resurrection text if you prefer. When Jesus is raised from the dead, it is God's official pronouncement. He's the one. It's amazing. Amazing. This is why in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says in verse 30, God raised Him from the dead. Then verse 33, He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, same thing. It's the inauguration. It's the coronation. He's the one who will rule and reign forever and in the in the, the biblical mindset from the old testament the king would not only be submitted to rightfully 
who would not only rule and reign, kings were also known and expected to be deliverers. They protect. They deliver from their enemies. They deliver from fear. They deliver from oppression. They provide, to use our word that we like to use more, salvation. It's another word for deliverance. So if Jesus is this one, He's the ultimate deliverer. Because kings were expected to be, unless they were tyrants, unless they were sinful, unless they were acting sinfully. But here we have Jesus, the unique one, we'll talk about this, who will deliver, who will set free, who will provide for, who will save. It's really quite, quite astounding. Today, Resurrection Sunday, I have begotten you. As you've been raised from the dead, you're the one. Let's, let's go ahead and look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's ruler talk. That's king talk. But do notice the scope. I will make the nations. So that's not just in Zion. That's not just Israel. That's the nations. That's beyond. And the ends of the earth your possession. This is why, by the way, we would call Jesus the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. He's the one and only Savior. He's the unique Savior. He's the King who shouldn't just be ruling in Zion. He's the ruler of the world. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior who is the one and only Savior. Because He's the one and only one who has accomplished what He's accomplished. By the way, who, who do you say that sort of thing to? So when you read verse 8, ask of me, this is still the son talking about his relationship with Yahweh. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who do you say that kind of thing to? Well, the answer to that question is you say that sort of thing, you say that specific thing to the one who has accomplished something. One who deserves it. You don't say that to someone who's not deserving. And here are the pieces I want to have you uh, put together with me and think this through. Jesus came to earth and did everything right. Everything. As he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, God's requirements. I came to what? I came to fulfill the law. I came to quote him on a different occasion. I came to fulfill all righteousness. I came to do everything right. On behalf of everyone who would ever trust in me because they need someone like me who did everything right because they're not doing the right thing. Raging against God. From 
great to small. Back to our opening verses. Jesus does everything right. That's the kind of person you say that to. I will reward you. I will give you. I will grant this to you because you are deserving. You are deserving. Think with me if you would now. And again, I realize we're, we're having to think here about Psalm 2 in relationship to Psalm 1. Some believe they, they originally went together. Some, this is for those of you who have, have advanced degrees or are pursuing one. Um, some manuscripts from Acts 13, some of the older manuscripts, where it says the second psalm, actually says the first psalm. Because scholars think they may have gone together originally before we divided them with numbers. Regardless, we, come back to me if you would, those of you who are not pursuing advanced degrees. <laughs> psalm 1 and 2 go together. And Psalm, I mean it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Psalm 1 is there on purpose. And Psalm 1 talks about how blessed is the one who walks in the way of the Lord. To quote it exactly, uh, it says in Psalm chapter 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the righteous. So you, you have this perfect person, they do what God says. And then to not do what God says, that's not right. And if you do what's right, what God says, it'll go well for you. And if you do what's wrong, it won't go well for you. And now we get to chapter 2, and we have Jesus being the faithful son. We know he's faithful because he's awarded the ends of the earth. Jesus is the one who fulfills what's expected in Psalm 1. Whoever this is in Psalm 2 is the one who is faithful to Psalm 1, if you will. This is why, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is vindicated at his resurrection. He didn't do anything wrong. He can't stay dead. You all know, if you know the Bible very well at all, the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus did all the right things. And so he couldn't stay dead. He's vindicated by the resurrection. And now he's deserving and worthy. Man, when the apostles are quoting Psalm 2, when they're preaching the gospel in the New Testament, they've got a much fuller picture. Worldwide rebellion against God. God is not sleeping it off or trying to change the plan. He's sticking to the plan that will be brought about by a decree and it will be deliverance, salvation, restoration, ultimate kingly rule by none other than His Son. And when the resurrection happens, it's God speaking loud and clear. He's the ultimate forever ruling, reigning king. And even crucifying him could not stop it from happening. It's amazing. Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus' obedience even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him, first and foremost, in resurrection. 
so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord because He's the faithful Son. It doesn't get much better than this. It's quite astounding. How about verse 9? You shall break them with a rod of iron. This is the Father speaking to the Son or the Son rehearsing what or repeating what the Father told Him. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Yikes. In other words, you will rule and you will reign like a true sovereign king who is just. Politics involves compromise, rightfully so. But a day will come when we don't need to have compromise because the King of kings and Lord of lords will be in charge. And there won't be any more mocking. It's pretty frightening to think about. I didn't say it was wrong. He's saying it this way because it's right. But it's unsettling. I just keep saying, wow. No compromise. Perfect rule. Perfect reign. Altogether just. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God saying that. This, this also is why in Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul preaches resurrection and they make fun of him, he says, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, there's that negative side of resurrection. He will rule with a rod of iron and God raised him from the dead and that's proof that there's a judgment day coming. Scene number four. Scene number four. Answering this question, how must one respond? How must one respond? Implication. It's the so what giving you a whole lot of information. But now, it's time to respond. There's actually an expected response. I mean, it's way easier to not go here, right? It's way easier to just like distract ourselves with something. Let's just eat Easter or, or Jesus chocolates. My wife came home from the grocery store yesterday and she said they had Jesus chocolates at the grocery store and we're supposed to eat Jesus? I mean, that, that's just way, that's just way better, right? It's just a, a distraction. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. He belongs on chocolates. We'll eat him. And you go, huh? Well, that's a lot safer. It's asinine, but it's a lot safer. I'm inviting you to do something that's not safe. To actually think. What did those apostles think when they preached resurrection? They thought this kind of stuff. And now what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? 
Okay, here we go. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And I'm going to read into that. He's just addressing the power brokers. He's just addressing the, the, the bigwigs. But when he opened the psalm, he was addressing everybody. And so I think arguing from the lesser to the greater, this would include everybody, but right now he's just aiming high. So you don't have to have a, you don't have to be a king or a ruler to have this apply to you. If you're really smart, it applies to you. If you're really, well, not as smart, it applies to you. Take notice, therefore, be warned. How about verse 11? Serve the Lord. Here's the command. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love the balance and I love the sophistication of that. The response is, you'd better treat him like he's God and not appear. And so there's trembling involved because we're talking about the one true and living God who raises dead people and who will judge. So, so, There's trembling involved, but he says, serve him. Treat him like he's the king. Acknowledge him as the king. Treat him with respect. And not only that, you don't sit in judgment upon his actions. You rejoice. It's that thing in you that says, this is right. Right is right. Come over to his side and say, you know what? That's right. What God says is true about Jesus, that's right. What God says is true about life, that's right. What God says is true about morality, that's right. What God says is true, that's right. Yes. It's good. That's the response. It's more than just tolerating Him. It's embracing Him. And speaking of that, verse 12 He says, kiss the son. As you would a king. Ancient world. Pay homage to the son. I acknowledge you as my sovereign. I acknowledge acknowledge you as my able deliverer, savior. The one who was raised from the dead. The one who's conquered the grave. The one who said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. It's a loaded phrase, but it's so awesomely captured. Kiss the Son. You go to the Son. How do you get to the Father? Through the Son. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son. Worship the Son. Respect the Son. Believe in the Son. Show allegiance to the Son. Then verse 12 says, Lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 1, blessed are all who follow God's law. There's really only one who meets the expectation as it must be met. And now he says, blessed are those who take 
refuge in Him. Stand before God who requires perfect law obedience. How in the world could it ever happen? Because I've taken my refuge in the Son. So I'm safe. I'm I'm accepted. I'm secure. I have a faithful deliverer in the Son. It's awesome. It's awesome. Jesus is indeed the righteous judge. Jesus is to be feared. Jesus is the one who God has appointed and He proved it by raising Him from the dead according to Acts chapter 17 that He will judge the world through. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the resurrected God-man. But my friends, I've got to tell you what the psalmist tells us. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The only way to escape the wrath of Jesus is to be trusting in the work of Jesus. And that's what Easter is, quite honestly. Well, I don't know what Easter is about. But that's what resurrection is about. He's the worthy King, Deliverer, Ruler, Savior who you must trust in. Because if not, It's condemnation. There's a reason why people don't like the resurrection. I'm inviting you to like the resurrection. To like the resurrected Jesus. Because there's hope in Him. And ultimately, if He's the Savior of the world, there's hope only in Him. Next Sunday at Omaha Bible Church, we're going to be talking about resurrection because that's what Christians do. And we'll look at it from a different vantage point. But for now, we're going to stop and hopefully be ready to worship in ways we haven't been able to worship before because our minds are informed and hopefully our hearts are stirred. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for an opportunity to look at a classic passage, the second psalm. And may we find ourselves seeing Jesus as more extraordinary than we did before. May we find ourselves uh, agreeing with you that He indeed is the rightful Savior. He is the rightful King. He's the rightful Deliverer. He and He alone is the one who conquered the grave. And He and He alone is the one in whom we can find ultimate lasting refuge. I know full well, God, that only you can change hearts. Only you can make spiritually blind people see. And so that's my request, that you would do that. You would do what only you can do so that we might be trusting in Jesus, each and every one of us, that we might be the blessed ones in light of what he's done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.